Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So, uh, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, Our guest for the evening, David Yulin, is the author or editor of 10 books, including Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles, uh, shortlisted for the Penn Diamondstein Timestein Spielvogel Award for the Art of the Essay, and the Library of America's Writing Los Angeles, a literary anthology, which is really terrific, uh, which won a California Book Award. Uh, The former book editor and book critic of the LA Times, he is a recipient of a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, a Tom and Mary Gallagher Fellowship from Black Mountain Institute at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and a Lannan Residency Fellowship. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Yulin. Thank you all for coming. There's, um, there's booze, so I encourage you all to partake. I sure am. And um, what I'm going to do is read. I like to tell people how long, so I think about 18 minutes. Um, this is. Uh, I'll give a little heads up about what the project is, and then I'll read. Hopefully, it'll it'll be quick. I mean, 18's not much. I got to give you some some time of of reading, and then we will kind of maybe converse. Um, if anyone in this room is not registered to vote, we have our voter registration forms here. <laughs> the goal is if you aren't registered, you can't leave until you register. Um, and you got to vote blue. Okay. So, a um, couple of quick program notes. This is um, a weird project for me because I don't go back. Um, I once wrote, described myself in an essay as a shedder. You know, I shed, I move on, I shed. Um, and I never go back work-wise. It never had occurred to me. Um, but this book, the original um, edition of this book, which came out in 2010, um, was written partly in response to um, the Obama, the first Obama election, uh, Sarah Palin, um, the, all the death panel bullshit surrounding um, ACA, and the kind of breakdown of collective narrative in, in that era, I had found that it was um, affecting me in the sense that I was spending way too much time on the internet, a problem I no longer have, um, <clears throat> particularly reading obsessively about like hitting the refresh button on um, political stories, and had really sort of lost the ability to concentrate, and I was curious about kind of the effect of digital culture on intellectual culture, not in a, hopefully not in a Luddite, anti technological way. Um, And as we sort of entered the crisis, or the current crisis, or the current set of crises, but there's one particular large um, orange crisis that we're referring to, um, I began to think about what we could do about it. One of the challenges of being in a state like California is that we are relatively protected. I say relatively because you never know, but we are relatively protected. We have generally good, certainly democratic, occasionally progressive government. We have, um, uh, we are still a nation of laws. And so it felt like we, you know, what can we do besides sort of, you know, snipe on social media? And the midterms are that opportunity, right? There are a number of seats in play. 
um, we can actually play a significant role in this state in flipping the house, which would be huge just in terms of um, presenting a huge roadblock and investigative function. Um, and so I began to be interested in how this might work, um, and also to think about updating some of the thinking that um, had been in the original book, again, about sort of the role of critical thinking. If we, you know, if I thought narrative had broken down in 2010 when this book first appeared, I don't even know what narrative is anymore. And as a kind of postmodernist, I'm in this really strange position because I don't believe in truth, um, but I do sort of believe in facts. Um, and I'm not sure that postmodern literary theory really works when applied to politics. Um, we'll see. I actually do want to say that when Rudy Giuliani said, you know, truth is not truth, I thought, I agree with you, um, although not for the reasons that you're suggesting. So, um, so I wanted to reconsider these questions, but I also wanted to see if we could do something um, in terms of the elections. So one thing I should say is that um, a chunk of, of the money from the, the sale of this book is going to Sea Change, which is a PAC. Um, okay. So let's give a big hand to Sea Change and Karen Bass, who has the added advantage of being my representative or representing me, my district. Um, it feels really great to be sort of working at the home level and in, at the district level in some way. Um, sea Change has already been involved in, um, in, in canvassing in many of the districts that are up, uh, up in the air, right, 49th. Um, which it looks like, according to 538, we can discuss the merits of 538 later, um, it seems to have about a five and six chance as of this morning to flip from Republican to Democratic. And also the 25th, right, which is Steve Knight, the Cal Arts District, um, which also looks like it is not out of the question that it will flip. So we have like 10 weeks left. We saw what happened today. I'm not... I know I'm preaching to the choir, but this is serious shit, and we, like, everybody has to vote, and everybody has to vote. So, anyway, um, I am going to, so in order, the other thing I want to say is that it's a lot easier, I realize, to reissue a book than to write a book, because all you have to do is write an introduction. It's like 20 pages, you know, a couple of weeks. Um, so to do this book, I didn't want to change the text of the book itself, because the other edition of the book is going out of print. Um, but so I kept the main text the same and I wrote a new introduction and a new afterword that hopefully frame it and that whole, that sort of contextualize it in some sense in terms of, of where we are in the culture. So I'm going to read the beginning part of the introduction and the closing part of the introduction. And I'm going to leave out the ponderous middle part of the introduction. Hopefully you can all determine whether you think the beginning and and, and end part are ponderous, they may be. Um, and, um, and also, this is the launch of the book. It came out today. So I really appreciate all of you being here. Thank you. It means an enormous, it means an enormous amount to me um, that you're all here. So early in May 2017, the Transportation Security Administration initiated a pilot program at two domestic airports in which travelers were told to remove paper products, books, notebooks, and other documents from carry-ons before x-ray screening. I know. At this point, when the news cycle seems to have sped up as if through time dilation, that reads like ancient history, especially since less than two months later, the TSA announced that testing had been completed and there were, quote, no intentions of instituting these procedures nationwide. All the same, bear with me, because suspended or otherwise, such a program has something to tell us about who and where we are. 
In the first place, the TSA may not have been true to its word exactly. This past September in Orlando, the agency released a statement affirming new procedures for travelers to divest their electronics larger than a cell phone, liquids, and other items that may give a cluttered image to the x-ray operator. The other items can include food, books, and magazines. More to the point, we've been here before. In October 2001, and just as an aside, let's not forget, let's not let the fact that a certain former president slips a certain former first lady a mint at a memorial service, let's not make that forget exactly what the legacy of that former president is. This is part of it. More to the point, we've been here before. In October 2001, the American Library Association announced its opposition to the Patriot Act, particularly Section 215, the so-called library records provision, which required librarians to turn over the records of patrons when asked to do so by law enforcement. That provision was sunsetted out of existence in 2015, but the after effect lingers like, to borrow a phrase from Don DeLillo, an airborne toxic event. Censorship is never over for those who've experienced it, Nadine Gordimer once observed. It is a brand on the imagination that affects the individual who has suffered it forever. What she's describing is a state of fear. Something similar might be said in regard to the TSA, which is not in the business of security so much as it is in the business of security theater. A form of magical thinking, Bruce Schneier, a fellow at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, has written that, quote, relies on the idea that we can somehow make ourselves safer by protecting against what the terrorists happened to do last time. Schneier's right. There is no point, no value in making travelers take off their shoes because one time a lone individual tried to blow up an airplane with a sneaker bomb. In the United States, however, we have lost the thread of logic in the stories that we tell. Just think about the headlines during the first 12 months of the Trump administration. The Muslim ban and the immigration raids, the Russian collusion investigation, the pussy grabbing and the paid off porn star. Just think about the racist rhetoric that runs like excrement from the president's mouth. On the one hand, America has always been a racist country. On the other hand, that has never before been rendered as acceptable. No, we are in the midst of a broken story and we have lost the ability to parse its lines. Stories I've long believed are connective, the only tool we have to reach out of our isolation regardless of how fleetingly. This is as close as I get to faith. This notion that narrative can save us even or especially if we cannot finally be saved. And yet living in this place and time, I wonder whether that's another disrupted narrative. What if stories are not what we need, not what brings us together, but rather as, Schneier's, as, excuse me, as Schneier asserts, what we fear. Let's stay with that line of thought for a moment because stories can be dangerous things. Those white supremacists in Charlottesville with their tiki torches and their khakis were telling a story I would have thought we'd put behind us until the election of 2016 made me realize how naive I'd been. It's not that I believed racism, supremacy had been vanquished. How could I? In a nation where, according to The Guardian, African-American men between 15 and 34 were nine times more likely to be killed by police in 2016 than other Americans. This is the narrative, or one of them, the supremacists and neo-Nazis sought to embody in Virginia. You will not replace us, they chanted as they marched. The phrase derives from a 2012 book by the French writer Renaud Camus called Le Grand Remplacement, pardon my bad French, 
which argues that Europe is being reversed colonized by immigrants of color, a clash of civilizations that amounts to an existential threat. People, Camus told the New Yorker in 2017, are not just things. They come with their history, their culture, their language, with their looks, with their preferences. The very essence of modernity is the fact that everything, and really everything, can be replaced by something else, which is absolutely monstrous. This is a ridiculous narrative, but it has staying power, going back to Cain and Abel, Exodus. What do we do with those we label other? For Camus, as for those in Charlottesville, the answer is simple, get rid of them. Here we see the story trumpeted by the president from the first day of his campaign. And if you don't think that's important, consider the permission it bestowed, for instance, on James Alex Fields Jr., who killed 32-year-old Heather Heyer and injured dozens of others when he drove his car into a crowd of counter-protesters. I can't remember a bleaker time in this country's history, Charles Pierce lamented in Esquire the day after, the, after Heyer's murder. The most perilous moments of the Cold War were frightening, but by and large, we were all in it together. The Vietnam period was angry and divisive, but there was a central focus to all the rage, an ill-conceived and immoral foreign adventure that even its most wrathful opponents knew had to end sometime. But the centrifugal forces seem stronger and more mysterious this time. They seem to be coming from too many different directions, and they seem to have a number of obscure and distant sources. Our sense of being a self-governing nation is being pulled apart. Pierce is referring to the collapse of collective narrative, which is what we are experiencing as a culture, left and right, relying on their own news sources, Ross Story and the Daily Caller, MSNBC, and Fox News. Not only that, but even the factions are factionalized and have been since at least the 60s. Purity, the rabid fervor of the true believer, the same for all extremists, left and right, versus pragmatism, competence. I have been on both sides and I cannot say what I now believe. Instead, I have only stories. Such as 18 years ago, I cast my vote for Ralph Nader in a state, California, that no Republican had won since 1988 and that Al Gore took by nearly 12 percentage points. Such as 18 years ago, I could still tell a classroom full of students that I might find common ground with, say, an evangelical from St. Louis, as long as we zeroed in on a few basic issues, housing, and education and healthcare. At the same time, I have come to recognize that all these narratives are incomplete, and every one turns out to be unfulfilling because none of them add up to a vision larger than themselves. That's the problem in a nutshell, the betrayal of a certain promise, a faith in, let's call it, progress, that there is more that will unite than will divide us, whatever those terms have come to mean. And yet I'm not sure I share that faith anymore or that there is a faith to share. Last winter, not long after the inauguration, I moved for four months to Las Vegas, which means I spent a lot of time driving through the rural west. Every few weeks, I would return to Los Angeles to see my wife and children, four hours, 273 miles, through the Mojave, the Angeles National Forest, Prim, Baker, Barstow, Victorville, Ontario, like a lost verse from a pop song about the open road. This, too, is a story or perhaps more accurately, several stories. We were somewhere around Barstow on the edge of the desert, Hunter Thompson begins Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, when the drugs began to take hold. <laughs> Whatever these towns may once have been, they are now roadside, roadside stops like any other, fast food joints and outlet malls, snacks and cigarettes and gas, the great American homogenization in which chains and cheap construction have yielded a landscape where towns appear interchangeable, although beneath their bland and echoed surfaces, I'm sure, beat distinct and differentiated hearts. 
The first time I made this drive, or one like it, was in 1968 on a family trip. I was not quite seven. Just past Barstow, we made the turnoff for Interstate 40, passing first through Needles, California, then Arizona. We would take three weeks to travel east. Then, as now, we were a nation divided, as we were once more in the 1980s when I traversed these roads again. For hundreds of miles, radio gave up only farm reports and God talk. And when I stopped to eat or sleep or fill the tank, I was never unaware that I was a stranger in a strange land. You a Jew boy? Someone once asked in a small town in South Texas. And although he wasn't exactly threatening, more curious, I want to tell you, there was a moment when I wasn't sure how to respond. Still, how strange could this land be if it were also so accessible, so available? I-40, for instance, it would carry me across New Mexico into the Texas panhandle, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee. <clears throat> I-15, were I to stay on past Las Vegas, would eventually bring me to Salt Lake City, Butte. There used to be a mileage sign in Wilmington, North Carolina, not far from I-40's terminus. Barstow, California, 2554, it declared. You might read that sign as information or as metaphor, but for me it was an emblem of the commons, of the country as a landscape we all share. Three decades later, in that same small town in Texas, I found myself at a 7-Eleven that had not been there the first time, in line between a teenager in board shorts immersed in his phone and a mother with three young kids. The scene was familiar, similar to what I might encounter in Santa Monica or suburban Boston, homogenization or progress, take your pick. I don't mean to make too much of this, except to acknowledge that I was mistaken, but I can't stop coming back to it as well. A story can take you through a whole process of searching, seeking, confronting, through conflicts, and then to a resolution, Maxine Hong Kingston writes in The Woman Warrior. And not unlike her, this is the narrative I want to share. I don't mean to, wait, is that where I want to jump? No, I don't want to read that part. Okay. So we're skipping the boring part. Um, well, it's not boring, but it just doesn't read well out loud anyway. Okay. Why do I read? I am looking for authority, intelligence. The last thing I want is someone to tell me what to think. But even more, perhaps, I seek engagement with both the text and the creator of the text. I hesitate to make too much of this because I always believe reading doesn't because I also believe reading doesn't need to be prescriptive. It doesn't require any value other than itself. At the same time, how can it not have a social function since it grows out of a public, even a performative act? The relationship between public engagement and private thought are inseparable for me, Claudia Rankin has acknowledged. For me, there is no push and pull. There is no private world that doesn't include the dynamics of my political and social world. When I am working privately, my process includes a sense of what is happening in the world. Faith again. Some sort of transfiguration, the closest we come to real communion between ourselves and another, who shares with us something in common, common cause, common courtesy, common knowledge, common sense. How could it be otherwise? We are all humans lost on this green and dying planet, stumbling alone together in the dark. We must resist fear, not because there is some reward out there in the universe, but because there is not. Myths are made for the imagination to breathe life into them. Albert Camus, that other better Camus, writes in the myth of Sisyphus. <laughs> he is referring to resistance and responsibility. If there is a personal fate, he continues, there is no higher destiny, or at least, if there is a personal fate, 
he continues, there is no higher destiny, or at least there is, but one which he concludes is inevitable and despicable. For the rest, he knows himself to be the master of his days. Master of his days or mistress, yes, it all begins with us. There is no one out there, no one coming to save us, no salvation, really, if we are speaking existentially. We live, we die, it doesn't matter. The world will go on after we're extinct. There is only now this moment built on the succession of other moments, the long line of language and of history, humans talking to one another, generation after generation, from out of the depths of our loneliness and solitude. Tragic? Maybe. Although I don't think so. If the myth is tragic, Camus concludes, that is because its hero is conscious. And consciousness is what we now require, perhaps as much as ever, the space to sit in silence and to think. We need what I once referred to as a quiet revolution to resist the lures of clickbait and of gossip, to stand clear of all the fake news and the bots. A decade, or so, or a decade ago, or almost, when I first began to notice my distraction, I did not think of it entirely in political terms. I'm not sure I do now either, although the lines are more starkly drawn. Why does reading matter? Because language and narrative are what we have. Without them, we are just scared mammals, reacting to the world around us, devoid of agency, of thought, betraying the necessary and, yes, frightful inheritance of our own consciousness. Once, during a long ago summer, in another century, I made a trip to Europe with my girlfriend. I have written about this, but not all of it. I found so many books there, I had to buy a suitcase in London to get them home. The flight to the United States was uneventful. I remember it as I remember most long airplane trips through the filter of what I was reading. Philip Norman's book of rock and roll short stories, Wild Thing, Carolyn Blackwood's bitter pill of a novel, The Stepdaughter. In the customs hall in Philadelphia, an officer asked me to open my bag. I had layered the top with dirty underwear, the kind of insignificant rebellion I favored at 23. If someone was going to look through my things, I wanted to make it unpleasant, <laughs> or at least uncomfortable. I wanted him to wish he, had, he were wearing gloves. As for the rest, it was just a gesture, since I had not brought anything restricted back. Yet here's what I've never told, although it seems to me now to be the most important part. The customs agent asked some questions about what I'd been doing while I was gone. Then as he began to realize my bag was full of paperbacks and hardcovers, he looked at me in another way. What are you doing with all these books, he asked, in a tone I recall as lightly menacing, although who knows really what he meant. It was almost the exact midpoint of the Reagan administration, less than three months before the 1984 election. In Europe, Americans were sewing Canadian flags to their backpacks. The week we returned during a sound check for his weekly radio address, the president joked, my fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. You guys don't remember that? The audio clip later inspired a collaboration between Jerry Harrison of Talking Heads and Bootsy Collins, a one-off single called Five Minutes, credited to Bonzo Goes to Washington. <laughs> what made me recoil was the idea, no, the implication, that books or reading could be dangerous. And yet, would we want it any other way? This is why I was drawn to them, because of what they taught the doors they opened, what they allowed or encouraged me to see. In that bag was work by Amos Tutola and Malcolm Lowry, Warren Miller's The Cool World, Sadeg Hedayat's The Blind Owl. In that bag were the mile markers of a road map I'm still compiling from one book to another and finally back to me. I remember standing on my side of a long table facing that customs officer, uncertain of both his question and my response. Had I done anything wrong? How many books is too many? 
It felt as if he were insinuating something, but I couldn't say for sure. The answer, I should have told him, is that there can never be enough. Why should we fear one another's stories? The true act of resistance is to respond with hope. All these voices are what connect us. In a culture intent on keeping us divided, they are, they have always been the necessary narrative. Thank you. All right. So um, I will take some, I guess we will do some Q&A for a little while, not for too long, um, um, and then uh, sign some books. And again, feel free to get snacks. Um, any questions? You said at one point, and I think I've read this from your past writing, that you had embraced postmodernism. <laughs> Although you're perhaps an ambiguous, ambiguously postmodernist now. I am ambiguously, I'm ambivalent about everything, including breathing, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think Maxine, uh, 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 Mr. Cummings noted this in her, in her new book, mm -hmm. that she argues, and I think she has a very interesting point, uh, that postmodernism I think she may be right. I don't know. This is one of the things that I'm wrestling with as just in my own head now. I'm kind of, in fact, I was saying to my wife the other day, you know, if I could find someone to publish it, actually make it worth my while to spend time, I'd spend the next six months trying to write an essay about this. Um, and I may. I mean, I'm not going to spend the next six months writing an essay about this, but I might spend the six months after that writing an essay about this. But I think about this question a lot. And as I said, I mean, I don't, as, you know, in terms of sort of experience, not just as a writer, but as a human, I believe in the inherent subjectivity of everything. I don't, I mean, I, I'm not saying that there isn't a truth, um, but I don't think that our minds can comprehend it. I think we are too defined by everything that surrounds us, who we are, how we were raised, what we like, what we don't like, our prejudices, um, whether we acknowledge them or otherwise, our predilections, our tastes, um, our knowledge, right? Um, so we are operating from an incomplete set of parameters to begin with. I kind of love that as an idea in terms of dealing with people and in terms of just, you know, not having any certainty about life. But I do think that it has crept into, uh, crept into political life. I'm not sure whether I think... Let's see how I want to put this. I think it may be a little facile to blame all of our political problems on postmodernism. I think there are a lot of other problems that are not, have nothing to do with postmodernism. But I do think, and I also think that in some sense, and I will put it in these terms in the sense that I think that the people on the other side, because I am a partisan and I do believe that this is a culture war, uh, the people on the other side do not seem to have any of these postmodern questions. They believe what they believe and they just believe what they believe and that's it. I mean, I had an argument with someone today where I basically presented um, the, the official budget, the 144-page official budget of the state of California as evidence to back up my claim and the person said, oh, I'm not going to read that. So I said, okay, so then we can't, there's no, right? I mean, I don't know how you have a common ground if there's not some territory. But I do think that there's something complicated about this, and I don't know what I think about it. It's a, I've now made a, a long way of saying I don't know. So uh, I don't know. But it's, it's something, there's something there, I think. So anyway, yes. So 
I think I didn't read the quote very well because I stumbled over it. So yeah, but basically, yeah, basically what Camus is saying is that if there is tragedy, it's because the hero is conscious. So my reading of that is that the hero then makes it tragic. I mean, there, I read it through a Buddhist filter. Experience is neutral. Um, it's what we bring to that experience. So the consciousness of the hero is what makes it tragic. Because my consciousness flickering out at the end of my life is only tragic to me because I'm conscious of it. My dog doesn't care at all, right? I mean, I assume he doesn't care. He doesn't speak. I don't speak his language. But he seems pretty copacetic with the moment. Um, consciousness is what imposes that narrative. Like, like narrative is a frame that gets imposed on experience by consciousness. I got kind of lost in it too. I was like, oh shit, I should have edited that better. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Well, again, my entire, I mean, sort of my, the one piece of faith I have, um, if we can call it that, it's a pretty shabby faith, but it works for me, um, or it's what I've got, so it's, you know, for better or worse, is that I don't believe that there's any inherent meaning in the universe. I believe it's a chaotic universe. I believe that humans are narrative-making animals. It's part of what we do. We tell stories to create meaning, and those stories sustain us, but they ultimately can't sustain us, and that is their kind of tragic beauty in a way, right? That we build these beautiful edifices and they can't protect us and then they evaporate along with us. It's like like Andy, you know the artist Andy Goldsworthy who makes, right? So it's like like that, you know, the, the, the whole point is in some way the collapse of the, the narrative because it's the best we can do. If there was a fully sustaining narrative, then we would basically be able to write our way out of death. And as much as I wish that were possible, I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm working on it. Other questions, yeah. Well, I think that's right, and I think it, to me it comes down to sort of the, which is also a lack of critical thinking, or an interest in, not even the ability to engage in critical thinking, but even an interest in critical thinking. And I mean, I think these are vast cultural problems that I don't have any, I mean, we all, we all recognize them. I don't know what the solution to them is, but I think that's one of the reasons, like we've lost that sense of commons. In the original part of the, the original book, I write a lot about um, common sense, about Thomas Paine's common sense. Um, which I think is called common sense. I mean, I think he, he uses that word common in all sorts of ways. Common at the sort of level of what at that time would be called the common man, but also common in the sense of the commons. And I think that without some kind of sense of common cause or a commons, then, then we are, I don't know what, I mean, I, and I think that's where we are, right? I don't know, I don't know how we pick that, put that back together. Yeah, I'm I'm opposed to bloodshed in general, but I don't know. Yeah. 
I do. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how much I want to bum you all out. So, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, to me, the question really is. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think in terms of America, I'll just stay with that for a moment. I think in terms of America, one of the key problems. I don't. I mean, it, well, again, and it's complicated because it may not entirely be a problem. But one of the key dilemmas is that the country was built. Right? The, the basic framing documents of the country were built around a small kind of coast, east, north and southeastern coastal, um, basically agrarian society with about four million people living in it, right? Um, and it was also built for white Christian male landowners. I mean, there were other people there because somebody had to do the work, but there was, um, but, there, but you know what I mean? So in that sense, all of those documents were built for that society, and that you know, the, the kind of astonishing thing about those documents is that they have been flexible enough to grow, uh, to to sort of sustain as the country has grown. But I don't know. I mean, I don't think that I don't I don't think it was built to have 360 million people spread out across an entire continent in some way. And I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I don't know if that's a solvable problem. I also think, in terms of historical imperatives, that like all empires, this one will fall, and we're living in the fall. I mean, I think we happen to be living at, I mean, we, you know, for years as a cynical 20-something living in New York, I would walk around Park Avenue and go like, it's Imperial Rome, we're here at the end of, of, of it. No, I, <laughs> I was like, we're here at the end of empire. And then all of a sudden, it turned out we actually were here at the end of empire. And I was like, wow, it's a lot less romantic to be living in it than it was to be like kind of pretending I was living in it when I was you know, young and, and wanted to be cynical. So I do think that in some way that because of time acceleration, and I think we can go back to literature in some ways. Like sometimes when I'm teaching, I'll sort of ask people to read. There's a chunk in the middle of Madame Bovary where the Bovaries move to the next town after Scandal has pushed them out of the first town. And Flaubert opens that section with five pages of description of the town before the carriage with the Bovary's in it shows up. So sometimes I'll show that to writing students and I'll be like, could this work now? And they're like, no, not a chance, right? It's too slow. Like, we don't even experience time the same way. And Trump is, you know, or not just Trump, it's everything, but Trump is the kind of, I hate to use this word in regard to him, but he's a kind of genius of this, has sort of really sort of accelerated the spiral. So I think in some ways, you know, 200 and, where are we now, like 230, 1776, 24, 242 years? Yeah, 242 years. Okay, did the math, right? So we're almost 250 years, you know, we're not going to be Rome in the sense that it's going to take 3,000 years or 2,000 years for the empire to fall. Um, I believe like in Roman time, right, the, Rome was sacked in 453. I think we're at about 448 right now. <laughs> so, um, you know, so that is, an, that is an inherently pessimistic statement. I think that like, hum like humans, empires have lifespans and we are at the end. Um, so... <laughs> So go vote blue. <laughs> no, but I do think that the other part of it which comes back to us is like, what do we do in the here and now for ourselves and for each other? And so I think we have to actually deal with what we have. I don't, ex you know, I have, what is, you know, again, I, I write every day with um, no hope, with a little bit of, what, I can't remember the Isaac Dennison line, but, you know. Neither hope nor despair. So I'm trying to kind of operate on this, this fall of empire moment with neither hope nor despair, but with this sense that we need to take care of, we're still here now. 
and we still have to take care of ourselves now. And just because the empire may be falling doesn't mean that we are not responsible to behave in a moral way towards each other and, um, and to stand up for the ideals. Like, I believe very strongly in those ideals of America. I think, you know, another point in here I quote, there's that great line at the beginning of um, Between the World and Me, the ta Coates book, where he talks about American exceptionalism, which I'm quite cynical about. And then, you know, Coates writes... He appears to be going in that direction, but he says, no, I actually want to hold America to account on this. It's time for us to live up to our ideals. And I, even, even, if those, uh, even if we're falling, I think that is, um, that's important, right? We got to stand for what's right until we can't stand. I, what I said was I don't believe in truth as a, I mean, that I don't believe that there is any kind of objective truth that we can all see. So I believe that we, I, I hate the phrase your truth, so I won't use that phrase. Um, but I do believe that we all have our own lens on what we think is right and what we think is real. Um, that may not be the same thing. We may not even be perceiving the same thing, right? We can only notice, what is it? Dennis Johnson has this great line in, in Resuscitation of a Hangman. I have no idea if it's true, but I, I don't care um, since I don't believe in truth anyway. <laughs> but he says we can only observe seven things at a given time, which means that our most carefully rendered scientific deductions may be as true as our... Um, as essentially as our delusions, right? Because we're taking seven pieces of information and putting them together. I mean, again, it's a little bit of a facile statement, but I kind of like it in the sense that we are only, um, we can only see things through our own perspective, right? So in terms of shared truth, there are areas where we come together and then we kind of pull apart. I also believe that we are essentially isolated beings who are um, unknowable to each other on fundamental levels. This is why I'm so committed to literature because literature is the place for me where I can be, I can come in contact with somebody's soul, right? You know, in a way that um, I can't in other arts, and often I can't, except fleetingly in personal, even in intimate personal relationships, because no matter how well you know somebody, there's still vast stores of them that you don't know. So I don't believe in truth like a definitive truth. I don't believe in answers. I believe in questions. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Um, but I do believe in facts, right? Because we need facts to assemble whatever our take on the truth is. And I believe in facts as a shared kind of commons also. What we do with those facts is up to us. The problem right now is that we don't even agree on facts, right? I mean, you know, we don't even agree on what facts are, right? So... I don't know what we do with that. And that's, so that's, that, I think that's what I'm referring to. And I think in terms of that kind of postmodern thinking, right, from a postmodernist point of view, truth, there, you know, truth isn't truth is right, okay? I completely get what that means. From a legal standpoint, I also kind of get what that means because I think what he's talking about is provable truth, although Giuliani's not the world's most articulate person, so <laughs> it's hard to know exactly. But I think he's talking about provable truth and he may well be talking about political truth, right? I mean, you know, we're now living in a culture where, well, you all know what culture we're living in. I don't need to go take us down that rabbit hole. But, you know, we're now looking at things where there is no, there appears to be no way to reconcile those different um, analyses and interpretations. And I don't know. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. Does that answer your question? Okay. All right.
We don't have that shared political coherence. I, I'm. Well, but I also see, but I also think that culturally, and this is the complicated part from where I sit, right? So I also think that culturally, that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, I think that the explosion of the kind of dominant narrative culturally um, into a whole bunch of other narratives is actually great and long overdue, you know, in the sense that all of these narratives, because I agree with you, like that internal, um, you know, what we use narrative for, well, I don't even want to talk about, but you know, what narrative does um, is it gives us a definition, a sense of definition or place. It does other things too, but that's one of the things it does. And I think that, you know, one of the problems with dominant narrative is it closes out all sorts of narratives that don't fit into it. So I actually think that that culturally that's a really useful and important thing. Um, what concerns me though is that it's, as everything, you know, it, it I, I don't know, I mean, the political, I, I can't even quite articulate what I'm saying because it's it's an idea I haven't settled in my head or or even settled enough to think about. Yes, yeah, but I also do believe firmly in like more narratives the better. But I think the narratives have to be. Well, it's who's. I was going to say the narratives have to be authentic, but then I'm just another critic saying here's what an authentic narrative is, which is a lie. So, yeah. In what sense? You know, that's an interesting question. I would, I think, I would group mythology in as a as a set of narratives, public narratives in a certain sense, or social narratives, right? Um, and I think, you know, um, so I would I would sort of see the, the breakdown of central mythologies as part of this move. Again, culturally speaking, I don't... Pardon? Well, Trump is, yeah, I mean, Trump is creating a kind of a mythology, right? And, and I think that that is an interesting point in terms of Trump's filling some kind of emotional center that people... Need. I'm not quite sure. I don't get the. Tr I mean, I have to say, I really don't get the Trump thing at all. Um, I mean, I I, know, I don't mean it in this way. I just don't get it. It's like, like what the f like whatever. Who like why would you why would you believe a word that comes out of that guy's mouth? I mean, I'm sorry. You know, grew up in New York in the '80s. We saw through him by like 1985. We knew exactly what he was. 
Um, and the fact that he duped the rest of the country or enough of the rest of the country to win that election is something I will never figure out. He's always been a low rent hood and, um, you know, and a he's just a grifter. Like the fact that he was able to extend the long con this far is, a it's insane, you know? And now I have to actually give him, again, a, a, a modicum of credit because it's really hard to get elected president of the United States. Even if you win on an electoral college loophole, it's legal, right? I mean, according to the way he, he won, according to the rules of the game as it is played, like that's a real, that, you know, I gotta actually say like the guy actually accomplished something. I would say he's never accomplished anything in his life. You know, he's, he's what did they say about Bush Jr. He was born on third and thought he hit a triple? You know, Trump was born on home plate. Well, of course he cheated, but no, only a sucker doesn't cheat, you know, right? Isn't that what he said about his taxes? Of course, of course I cheated on my taxes. Only an idiot, like I'm smart. Of course I cheated on my taxes. Well, that's true, right? Um, you know, they drew the line at steroids, though. But, but be that as it may, I mean, I think, you know, I think to me it's just another piece of that kind of narrative. And I think in some way the embrace of Trump as a kind of mythic figure speaks to the desire for some kind of narrative. It's also a throwback to an old, corrupted, sort of, an old corrupt narrative, right? Trump, if you look at what Trump is doing, I was thinking about this today as I was driving over here because I was listening to the news and I was listening to stuff about Kavanaugh. And I was thinking, you know, what, you know, just if you think about what happened in that hearing room today, right, with the Democrats on one side, with the protesters, and then with the Republicans gaming the system, all of that stuff, it feels like we've gone right back to like 1968 in some way, but with no hope right? In 68, we were moving in this direction, and now it's like we're moving back. And so I think that it's not just Trump as an individual, although Trump does say what people, what, what some people want to hear, but also that sense of that old, you know, corrupted narrative of America, right? Like that is also, I think, a desire for some coherent narrative. It's a bad coherent narrative, but if you're on that side of if that's the way you think, you can, that, is, that does fill that role of being a coherent narrative. And so I think, you know, that's, that, I don't know, I mean, again, I feel like I'm talking myself in circles here. I don't have any idea what, what we do about that, but I think that's definitely part of the problem. Yeah. No, it's not just, and it's not just here. It's global in, in all sorts of ways. If we can call it thinking, <laughs> if we can call it thinking, yeah. It's an excellent question. I don't know that he's so different. I think he's, 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 and I don't think he's sui generis, right? I don't think he just came up out of nowhere. 
I think Trump has everything to do. I mean, it goes back to Goldwater. It actually probably goes back to like the Alien Sedition Act, but it certainly goes back in the current moment to Goldwater, to Nixon and the Southern Strategy. Um, it, you know, it goes back to you know Reagan, both in '76. Remember, one of the parts I didn't read in here talks about Nixon went to the Neshoba County Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi, in 1980. Philadelphia, Mississippi, was where the three civil rights workers were killed in 1964 by. Um, Neshoba County, by a group of Klansmen who included Neshoba County Sheriff's deputies and Philadelphia, Mississippi city policemen, and um, gave a states' rights speech, right? So, you know, so that's also a very knowing dog whistle that, that he gave, you know, in that speech to people who absolutely 16, well, yeah, 16 years after the fact, knew exactly what he was talking about. So that's also, you know, so that too, that's Trump, that's Trumpian, right, in a certain, in a certain sense. So I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I think Trump is just the furthest, you know, the thing that really scares me is if we survive 20 years from now, we'll be having the same conversation about Trump that we're having right now about W which would be like, oh, at least Trump was kind of a statesman, you know, or whatever, you know, like. <laughs> I'm not, you know what I mean? Could you ever believe that, like, we'd be, like, looking back at Bush, either of the Bushes, but particularly the idiots, the, you know, the regent, you know, you ever imagine we would be looking back at, at W and going, like, oh, maybe he wasn't so bad, you know? I mean, come on, like. I spent eight years, I spent, thank God there wasn't social media, I spent eight years ranting daily about that guy. There was once a moment, and I'll just say this quickly, and please pardon my language, we haven't had enough of it yet, but um, when, when my daughter, who's about to turn 20, was four, so first Bush term, she and my wife used to play this game where they would look at the newspaper in the morning and Sophie would point at pictures and say, who's that? And then Ray would tell her who that was. And one morning, I was in bed, it was like 6.30, and Ray came into the bedroom and burst into laughter. And I was like, what's going on? Apparently, they'd been going through, like, who's that? Michael Jackson, who's that? And whatever, who's that? George Bush. And my four-year-old daughter went, fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's my legacy. <laughs> so, you know, so like that guy, the fact that that guy's being rehabilitated and that I'm actually looking at that guy and going, like, you know, compared to this, like, at least you, like, you know, knew how to tie your tie, you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the issue. Like, I'm much more concerned at this point. I mean, I definitely think it's essential that we flip at least the House yeah. so that we have investigative function and we also have a firewall against um, whatever the, the administration's plans are. But I also think that as we watch Kavanaugh get slammed through, which I fully expect is what's going to happen, um, that, that's, I mean, that's the issue, right? So the other thing I want to say quickly, and I feel like I should wrap it up because 
I've kept enough of your time. But the other thing I want to say quickly is that I think like this is all, you know, so we are having a little revival meeting here, right? And I think that one of the things about it is we need it, right? We need to be together and we need to be aware of the fact that we're not just alone. I mean, when I sit around with, with friends, we go out to dinner and we like talk about how we're, you know, we're, you know, like we obsess about this stuff all the time. So we're not alone and we need to do what we can again. Like even if this is the fall of the empire, even whatever, whatever we can do, whatever we can do, right? And so I really want to just say, you know, so for me, one of the key impetuses, and, and I, again, I have not gone back and wor worked on old projects, but one of the key impetuses or impeti or whatever we want to say um, about working on this book and trying to raise money and also is that this, like, we can do something now. If we don't, this is, I really do firmly believe this is it. You know, if, if the Republicans win, I'm not worried, I mean, I'm not particularly worried about the Senate because I don't think the Democrats are really going to win the Senate, but if the Republicans win the House again, then it's just free fall, right? It's open season and everything is validated, and I think that this is it. So I really just want to, um, I'm happy, happy is probably not the right word, but um, whatever, gratified, let's say, to have the opportunity to push it. Let's push it. Attica. Mm -hmm. That's all we, I think that's all we've got, right? Because I think the thing, the only thing we have, and this comes back to the existential question, because I'm acutely aware of my own mortality, as I think we all are, to, you know, um, it's all about seeing each other through and working towards each other. If you look at today, the thing that really got me the most was um, when Kavanaugh wouldn't shake hands of the, the father, right? He wouldn't shake Fred, it's Fred Gutenberg's, right, yeah, Fred Gutenberg, right, so he went up to shake his hand, so, okay, right, he's the father of one of the kids who was killed at Parkland. He turned his back on him. He turned his back on him. Okay, so it's not, so that's what I'm saying, so that, I don't, you know, whatever, it would have cost him nothing. Right? He could have still been exactly who he is and espoused all the views he espoused and whatever. It would have cost him nothing. He wouldn't have even had to be a human. He could have just pretended. It would just would have cost him nothing to shake his hand, pat him on the shoulder, and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. It wasn't even there. So I think that that's one of the things we're dealing with. If you look at, you know, again, I don't mean, I think Trump is the symptom, not the cause. Um, he's a pretty bad symptom, but he's a symptom. But that lack of humanity towards each other, the idea that, um, you know, whatever, whatever adjective we want to use, the undocumented, the elite, however it gets used, that somehow they are less than us because of some accident of legal status or something, the fact that we can't have compassion. I feel it on our side too because I don't, right? And, you know, I find myself being corrupted because I don't have, you know, I see, I see things and, um, you know, I say things that I will absolutely not say in public because, you know, but I, but, you know, I'm like, I would, you know, this is what should happen to that person. But that is a person, right? That is a person who, like, has a body and goes to sleep at night and has parents, you know, and, like, ha hopefully has people they love and care for. And I think that this is, this is the key question. If we lose sight of our shared humanity, and our shared humanity has to do with our vulnerability more than anything else, then we are, we are lost. And I fear 
that there are many who are lost already in that regard. And um, so it's so, you know, yes. I, you know, except I'm in favor of the lack of civility when it comes to, I mean, I think civility is, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lack of civility, but I also think that that civility is a two-way street, you know, and so, you know, so I think that we often get, we often end up having the lack of civility thrown at us as, as an, in, it, how would I put it? It's an, in, it's an uncivil act, right? You know, it's civility, depending on how it's being used, often it's being used to say, to sort of actually mean servility, right? And if, you know, if you're, you're not being civil because you're not willing to be servile. And so I'm very much opposed to civility on those terms. But I do believe it's lack of, of the ability to hear each other or something. And to recognize our own humanity. Even Donald Trump is a human being, I have to imagine. <laughs> Although I wonder if there's like, if he's a cyborg or something. But, you know, but whatever, you know, he's got a heart, right? He's got a heart. Some of the favorite things I've read this year, I really liked, that's a good question. Um, I've been uh, rereading all of James Baldwin, so that's been kind of great. Um, but I've read that stuff before, but that's a, a good touchstone. I have um, I've read a couple of really remarkable memoirs, including um, a book by Annie Ernaux called The Years, which I read early in the year, um, which is a memoir in the first person plural. It's a generational memoir, French writer. Um, I, there's a great novel, God, I can't remember names, but the writer's name is Megan Hunter. Um, she's a writer, a British writer, it's a first novel, takes place in London in a kind of post-apocalyptic London that has flooded. Um, and in the midst of this, this character um, is pregnant, she has a child. And so you've got the apocalyptic world on the one hand, and you've got this sort of new world on the other. I thought that book, it's written in these little tiny fragments, I thought that book was quite remarkable. Um, there are others. It's a you know it's a strange thing. It's a terrible question to ask a book critic because although we read all the time, we can never remember. Like I, you know, if you give me your email address, I'll email you at 3 a.m. I'll be like, here's like 36 books, but I like thinking on the top, off the top of my head um, is harder for me. Um, I teach at USC and I also teach in a low residency program at um, UC Riverside. So, all right. Thank you all for coming. And thank you all for listening to me as if I actually knew what I was talking about. All right, can we get another uh, round of applause for David? So if you give us a minute, we'll turn all this around. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.